kidding. All right, um, we're going to be continuing on in the book of Matthew. Uh, we are still in the Go Tell series. Now, we have, uh, these last few weeks, been covering some of the, I mean, the most amazing material uh, in Scripture, and that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, now, we looked at the resurrection from Matthew's perspective, and last week we looked at it from John's perspective. Uh, so this week we're going to move on and take a look at some of the things that happened after uh, the resurrection. Now, this is just a quick, you know, a quick recap, as quick as I can make it anyway. Um, but if you look back now, the Jewish leaders knew that Jesus had prophesied that he would die and that he would be resurrected in three days. They knew about that. They didn't believe it, but they knew about that. So just in case, they asked Pilate if he would order extra security at the tomb. Right? I mean, just in case some of his friends tried to steal the body. Right? Now, the Jewish leaders knew the situation. I mean, they got to witness Jesus being tortured. They got to witness him die on a cross. They got to witness him put in this tomb. I mean, think about it. They knew that tomb was impenetrable. We're talking a 4,000, 2 to 4,000 pound stone rolled downhill in front of that opening, as we talked about last week. They would, it would be impossible, maybe even for 10 people, to roll that stone away. I mean, they knew the situation, and they knew it would almost be impossible to steal the body. So knowing all that, you kind of kind of wonder, why did they go through such extremes to guard his grave? And the reason is, they realized that, that only God had power over death. They knew that, and they knew the people knew that, right? So they didn't want to take any chances that anything would happen to make people believe that he actually was not in that tomb. Because if he was not in that tomb, then he was Jesus, son of God. If he were not in that tomb, then everything he preached were true. They were going to look like idiots, and people were going to start following Jesus. So I don't think people realize when we, when we read about the resurrection, sometimes I think we, we go into feel-good mode, maybe. You know what I mean? Story time mode. You know, yay, Jesus, you know, rose from the tomb. But I, I don't think we realize this is one of the most, I mean, hot, battlegrounds in scripture i mean this is for all the marbles here people i mean this is at the crux of christianity if he doesn't come out of that tomb if he doesn't if he's not resurrected then i mean it changes the whole game right i mean so they had to make sure that people didn't think he came out of that grave and the devil was involved here because you know he didn't want people to believe in this resurrection either because he knew that the resurrection would empower people Right? And he knew that if, if, if people would look at the resurrection as, as a farce, if they could explain it away, he knew that that would be the death of true faith. So there is a lot at stake here. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 16. It says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Worthless, Worthless and you are still what? In your sins. So, I mean... This is a very big battlefield we're talking about today, right? Because the resurrection should empower us to stop living like we're dying. And, and I'll explain that uh, in John eleven twenty five and 26 here. But we should stop living like we're dying and start living like we're trying to keep others from dying. And, and John explains that. He says, it says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even what? If he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me, what? Will never die. Okay, and that should change the way we live. So, let's jump in and see. Let's start taking a look at this. Matthew 28, 11, it says, Now while they were on their way, uh, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. Okay, this is something I don't think we take enough of a look at. Okay, 
Because after the resurrection, think about those guards that were guarding the tomb. Okay, think about them for just a second because they're going to have to face the music now. Okay, because neither the Romans nor the Jewish leaders were known for being very forgiving. Okay, they, they weren't known for their graciousness. They weren't known for second chances. And these guards only really had one job. Okay, one job, and that was to secure the body of Jesus in that tomb. All right, this should have been a no-brainer. There's a 4,000-pound stone in front of it, for crying out loud. Just watch it, right? That was their job, right? And failure for any reason could and probably would result in certain and immediate death. Everybody knew that, right? So this wasn't one of those assignments that had a lot of room for error, right? I mean, like I said, this is for all the marbles, spiritually speaking, right? This, this job is kind of like what I'd imagine the guy's job who packs parachutes being like, right? It's not like you can make a mistake. There's not a lot of room for error because if you mess up, you know, somebody dies, right? It ends tragically. So this was really, really important. But that Sunday morning, the greatest fear they could have possibly had was realized because the tomb was empty. That stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty and the body of Jesus was gone, right? And they had to, to report this to their superiors. They just had to, right? I mean, because this is probably the kind of news that's going to spread kind of quickly, right? That Jesus rose from the grave, especially when you think that the first people to find out he was resurrected was a group of women. So you know that was going to spread fast, right? All the beauty salons in Jerusalem are talking about it. I'm just saying, this was going to get back fast, right? And they knew it would be bad for them if the Jews found out another way. Okay, now I want you to spend a little time here imagining the dread and the fear and the anxiety they probably felt when they were walking along the road on their way to tell their superiors. Can you even imagine what they felt like? I mean, personally, I would have packed all my stuff, bought a disguise, and I would have left. That's what I would have done. There's no way I would have faced him. But if you've never had a fear or dread like this, because I want you to understand, they knew how important their job was that was just blown. Okay, so I want you to kind of understand this dread and fear. Have you ever had something you dreaded so bad that you feared so bad that it was like heavy, you could feel like a weight on you? Anybody ever had that? You know, I mean... And to make you understand, I'm going to give you an example, an illustration out of the dark regions of my mind to kind of make you understand, because this is what it made me think of. I remember back in high school, <laughs> so you know it's not going to be good right now, but I remember back in high school, they would bring you that, that yellow office slip to your classroom. How many people remember the yellow office slip? It was yellow at our school, right? That yellow office slip they would bring, and that was given to the teacher by the office kid that, you know, ran errands the student council guy or whatever. But anyway, and what that paper was, was it was giving permission for the teacher to let you go and come to the office and, you know, face the music. Or, remember when they would announce your name over the intercom? Oh my gosh. I mean, the fear that would, that would hit. I mean, this happened to me several times. I'm just going to be honest with you. Both of them happened to me several times. And for those of you who never get in trouble, I, I want to walk you through what this felt like. Okay, I want to walk you through this because as soon as the office helper would knock on the door, it did not matter what was going on in that room. Silence. Because everybody was thinking, who is the, you know, the hit on, right? And you could like hear their shoes squeaking as they walked up to the desk. And all that was going through your mind were thoughts like, what do they know? 
and who told him? <laughs> who narked on me? Right? That's what's going through your mind. Right? And as soon as the teacher reads it, I swear they enjoy seeing you get in trouble because as soon as they read it, they kind of smile and look up. And you can see those eyes piercing like lasers across the audience looking for who the guilty party is, and everybody's sweating. It was usually me. And then those judgmental eyes land directly on you, and it feels like they're looking into your soul. You know what I mean? And then they do something I never understood. They announce to everyone that you need to go to the office. They don't call you up front and whisper it. They're like, uh, Mr. Mosley, they'd like to see you in the office. Right? Then all the kids turn around, and you feel yet another group of eyes burning through your soul with judgmental undertones facing you. You just, you just it's brutal, right? And then... Then there's that long walk to the office. How many people have seen the Green Mile? <laughs> you know, where that, you know, the Green Mile was the hallway that led to your execution. That's what it felt like. That's what it felt like when you were walking, you know, and you, it's almost like you could hear the other kids thinking, hmm, dead man walking. <laughs> I mean, they knew. You got the slip. They heard it, right? So Confucius said anticipation of death is worse than death itself. And never a truer word has been spoken because in my mind, there's nothing they could do to me that was worse than what I thought was going to happen to me, right? I mean, the blind anticipation and expectations were just absolutely terrifying, and you're thinking, what's going to happen? Am I going to get detention? Am I going to get suspension? And back then, before the politically correct era, you could get the paddle. And when I say paddle, I'm not talking ping pong paddle. We're talking paddle. Paddle, holes in it. I know that paddle. There's rumors that some of them had meat hooks. How many people heard those rumors growing up? Yeah, meat hooks in them. A lot of people just disappeared, and we think it was the meat hooks, right? And then what really stinks is usually when you get to the office, your mom's waiting there, or your dad's waiting there. Oh, my gosh, and there's, there's a glass wall there just so they know you can see that. When you're coming down there, you can see that it's your mom or, worse yet, your dad. And the first thing that comes to your mind is there's only one reason they would call a parent in. That's so they can sign the death certificate and claim my body. That's the only reason they're there. And then finally, the lady finally will tell you why you're called down there. You wait forever for her to pronounce your sentence. And then it's something stupid like, hey, you forgot your gym clothes. Your mom brought your shorts. But all that anticipation was miserable. I mean, heavy anticipation. Right now, that's kind of on a smaller scale what these guys were going through, except they weren't worried about detention or paddles. They were worried about death. They had to think about that every step of the way. Every step of the way, all right? So what the guards didn't know, though, what they didn't understand was, see, the Jews knew this was such an important battleground, so much so that they had a backup plan in place. Okay, the Jews were way too invested to allow an empty tomb to screw everything up. They were way too invested. They had something already planned in case that happened, right? Because one thing you're going to find in dealing with the enemy is that he always has a contingency plan. He always has a backup plan. He always does. Uh, and, and the reason is, is he never plans a punch or an attack unless he has a counterpunch and a counterattack. And he does that because he is passionate about destroying what we're trying to do. He does not want us to get out the message. He doesn't want people's lives delivered. He wants to stop us. He wants to distract us. He wants to destroy us. That's what he wants to do. And just because you may have a victory, you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever overcome a temptation? and you win that battle. Anybody ever done that? Or you overcome that trial. How many of you have come through a trial, and it feels so good, doesn't it? But you don't even get time to enjoy it. 
and he's got the barrels loaded, and he's right back at you again. Have anybody noticed that? I mean, he just, it's not like he goes, oh, they won, I, I quit, I'm going home. That's not, that doesn't happen. He has a counterpunch. He's always going to come back to you. And the thing is, is most people don't realize that we're still at war like this. You know, I, here's how I envision it, because I'm strange, but I envision, you know, Christian people sitting in their chairs, eating their popcorn, watching TV, and bullets whizzing by their head, and they're oblivious to it. Because the battle is still going on, right? The battle is still going on. We're at war. And Christian people don't look at it that way. Listen, we've won the war. We know that. But there are so many battles we have to fight. And that's why the Apostle Paul, how many people have heard of the armor of God? Raise your hand. Okay, good. I think, though, we've kind of uh, made that a little more mellow than it's supposed to be. We put it on our refrigerators and our bumper stickers and T-shirts and all that stuff, and that's awesome. But I don't think we understand why Paul wrote that, okay? Because Paul wrote this looking at the world as a battlefield. The Apostle Paul knew we were at war. And he knew that if we weren't prepared for that war, we were going to lose a lot of battles, right? So that's why he wrote this. And let me read this to you. I'll explain it briefly, but... um, Let me read this to you, and I want you to look at it from that standpoint. Uh, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on, what? The full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Okay, he's saying this isn't a normal war. Our struggle isn't against just flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of his darkness. Whose darkness? The enemies. Of this darkness is the enemy's darkness. Uh, again, uh, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the evil day, in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Now, I'm going to take a look at this really quickly, because what Paul does next here is really brilliant. Because he compares the armor of God to the armor of a Roman soldier. And it's just amazing how he does this. Okay, and I'm just going to do this from the top of my head. But he says, you know, he says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth. See, the the Roman soldier would have a belt. Okay, and they'd call that girding your loins. We're not going to go into that. But anyway, he'd have this belt. And every piece of his armor attached to that belt. That belt held all of it together. Without the belt, it wouldn't fit. It would fall off. Okay, and what he is saying is our belt that holds everything together is the truth of the gospel. What holds everything together in this war is the fact that we have the secret that shouldn't be a secret anymore. That anyone who will believe can have eternal life, that death doesn't have control over us anymore. We have the truth of knowing that we win in the end. We have the truth on our side that Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again, and because of that, we can too. Everything hinges on that, the truth of the gospel. That's what that's talking about. That's what he's comparing it to. It says, in having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Listen, they wanted to be swift in battle, so they had their feet covered with these leather-type sandals and armor on top so that no one could injure them. He says, our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel, meaning we know the gospel, we know how to share the gospel, and that's what motivates us and moves us, right? And he says, uh, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith. I want to spend some time on this, even though I'm not supposed to. Anyway, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. How many people in here feel like you've had those arrows fired at you before? Anybody? 
I mean, I, there are times I feel like they just hit me everywhere. You know, and the, the enemy's just attacking you from every angle, and he's saying that we should have a shield, and that shield should be faith. That shield should be, see what those shields were for the Romans where they were made of wood, then they had leather on them, and then wood over the leather, like, bound, uh, you know, like around the leather to trim it. And what they would do was when they would fire these flaming arrows, which was, you know, something that was very common in battle at that time, they would hold the shield up, and when the arrow would hit the shield, it would stick, and the leather in the wood would put the flame out, right? And he's saying, your shield is faith. When he attacks you saying you're not good enough, your shield of faith should stand up and say, yes, I, I am, because my righteousness is his. You see what I mean? That's what it's talking about. Whenever he attacks you with fears, you should be able to, to extinguish that arrow with your shield of faith, saying, I have nothing to fear because I am serving him. I trust him to keep his promises. And the cool thing about these shields, the cool thing is that they were designed to, to connect together with other shields, with other soldiers. So if the barrage was great, so there's, I mean, hundreds of, how many people have seen Lord of the Rings? You know the scene where all those arrows are just, and it's like the whole sky's lit up? There are times I feel like that. And what he's saying is, when you're really under attack, that's when it's time for your brothers and sisters in Christ to come up and latch shields with you. And take a knee and lift that shield up over your head so that together you guys form a force field that blocks everything he has to throw. Listen, together we're more powerful and harder to kill. Right? This is beautiful how he, how he draws that. So when they're, when they're attacking one of us, one can come and when the faith starts to waver a little bit and you start to set the shield down, that's when it's time for someone to pick you up. That's, if my shield's starting to fall, I want Roger to latch his shield to mine and help me lift my shield back up and protect me. Because I do that for him too. We should be able to do that for everybody. To where the enemy knows when I attack them, I'm just going to be firing into a force field because of so much faith. That's what he was talking about here. Right? And he says, and take the helmet of salvation. Right? You know what that means? I'm going to make this real simple. You should know you're saved and the devil can't take it. You're not going to lose it. That should be the end of it. Your head should be protected with that. No matter what happens, you're not losing heaven, so he got that. You know what I mean? The helmet of salvation. I missed the breastplate of righteousness, didn't I? I did. Let's pretend I didn't. The breastplate of righteousness is just saying, you know what the breastplate covered? The, the, they had this big metal breastplate that covered, you know, the important organs, the good stuff, right? The things you don't want poked holes in, right? And so he's saying our breastplate is righteousness, meaning that we are protected by his righteousness, not our own. It's the righteousness of Christ that makes us able to go to heaven, not our own righteousness. That's our breastplate that protects our vitals, okay? And then in the end, he says, after the helmet of salvation, he says the sword of the Spirit. And the only offensive weapon we have is the Word of God. And people go, that's it? And I'm like, that's enough. That's like a big spiritual MAC-10 or an Uzi. It's huge. You know? That's an AR-15 with an endless clip. Because everything the devil doesn't want to deal with is in those pages. Every answer to every fear. Everything that, that he tries to lie to you about, the truth is in there. And he's saying, listen, you don't have to come up with these amazing weapons of war. Just pick up my word. I got this battle won for you. So, I mean, that's why Paul brought this up, because we are in a battle. And this, this resurrection wasn't just, oh, look, Jesus, you know, rose from the grave. This was one of the most critical battlefields out there, right? And so much so that they had a cover-up. 
Now, nowadays, a cover-up kind of loses its power because we got people that have conspiracy theories about everything. Tupac and Biggie are working at McDonald's in cold water. We hear all this dumb stuff. <laughs> you know? Here, you know, so, but back then, this was a big cover-up. All right, so Matthew 28, 12, it says, and when, and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. <laughs> Did you hear that? Their answer was, we're going to pay you, and you tell them that the body was stolen while you were asleep. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Verse 14, and if this should come to the governor's ears, we will uh, win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So as I said, just like the enemy, just like the devil, they had a backup plan. Just in case that tomb was empty. Because there was too much at stake here. They could not allow that body to be stolen. They couldn't allow that. Even if it was resurrected, nobody could know about that. Right? And what was their plan? Pay off the guards. Have the guards say that the body was stolen. But here's what I don't get. I would have said, hold up. I like the plan right up to where you said, stolen while we were sleeping. You want me to say that I fell asleep at my post and they stole his body moving a 4,000-pound stone uphill and I slept so deep they walked right by. You want me to say that? But that's what they wanted him to say. That's what they, and, that, and they said, don't worry. You know, if the governor finds out, we'll smooth it over. I would not have trusted that, would you? I'd be like, oh, well, you'll talk to the governor. Forget it. Give me my costume. I'm leaving. That's what I would have done. Right? So they were supposed to tell him why we slept. The disciples came. You know what I always wanted to say? If you were asleep, how'd you know the disciples came and took it? You know what I mean? But anyway, that's what they were supposed to say. And they said they'd take care of the authorities. Just ridiculous. Now, ironically, I think if you think about it, and if you look at it, this excuse, this cover-up, would have probably made any intelligent person realize he had been resurrected. Because it's so full of flaws. Not only did any intelligent person understand that probably even five or ten guys couldn't move that 4,000-pound stone uphill. It's not like they were pushing it down the hill and, or you know, had to roll it four feet. They had to move it up a hill with it. 4,000 pounds. And who's the poor guy that's got to hold it while you're getting the body out? That's what I want to know. Right? So not only does the, the, the intelligent person say, eh, I don't know, this story sounds kind of strange to me. And nobody would really be naive enough to actually believe that theft was possible. Right? But if that wasn't enough to make them not believe that story, when they saw the guards walking around telling this story and not being executed, a red flag's going to go up. You know why? Because they knew the Romans. They knew what the Romans did when you, when you showed blatant incompetence. Like I said, they didn't show forgiveness. They didn't give second chances. You screwed up, you died. Right? And they knew that if, if anybody was going to die, it was going to be these guys. Because that's like the biggest screw-up ever, guarding a dead body, and you can't do that. Right? That's entombed. Yet these guys are walking around telling their story with a new pair of kicks on because they got paid. You know, these guys are walking around telling their story. The fact that they were still alive made all the red flags go up. They're like, what, 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 why are you still alive? Imagine someone walking into the police station saying, yeah, you know those three homicides you're trying to solve? That was me. Right? And here's how I did it. Here's where I did it. Here's the weapon. And three days later, you see him sitting at Taco Bell eating a Nacho Bell Grande. Are you going to think something's up? 
You're like, why are you still walking the street? That's what people would have thought when they saw this guy still walking the street. They'd be like, hey, something's up. I think there's a cover-up in place because he should be dead and nobody could steal that body. I just can't believe, you know, they thought that was a great, you know, a great excuse. This was just a desperate attempt to cover up the truth inspired by the enemy. And, you know, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't know why this made me think of this. And you're probably thinking, I can't believe you're going to chase this rabbit, but I'm going to. It's a big, beautiful rabbit. But when I see that desperate attempt to cover up the resurrection, it makes me think of evolution. Because that's today's desperate attempt to cover up the truth. And it is so desperate. You know what I mean? And every time someone tries to use this, you know, as defense that there is no God, I, I, did, I can't help it. God help me. I just don't look at them as very smart. Right? Because they, they come up to you and they say, are you really ignorant and naive enough to believe in a God that you can't see? And he just supposedly created everything. And I say, well, what do you think? And their explanation is this, that gases bumped into each other and exploded and we have everything. And I'm going, hmm, okay. See, they can't identify what the gases were or where they came from, but they know they exploded, right? Because everybody knows the gases no one sees always blows up when they come across each other. Everybody knows that. They can't replicate that process, but they still know it happened. They can't explain how chaos and explosion created Order, which is creation. That's one of the basic fundamental laws of, of science. You can't get order out of chaos. It doesn't happen. Hey, listen, put, a, put a, a firecracker in an apple and light it and tell me what it creates other than applesauce. It doesn't make anything come together. It blows everything out. Order isn't created from chaos. They can't explain how all species and plants and animals all evolve from one set of slimy amoeba. And they can't find the missing link. Right? Now, sounds like they need more faith than I do, to be honest with you. And it makes me ask some questions, and I didn't think I was going to do this, but I'm going to. Okay? Has anybody ever wondered, where are the people who are still in between? Anybody ever wondered that? Where are the missing links? I mean, if, if this is a process that continues over billions of years, because there's so many great ways to measure time in billions of years, Right. But if that really happened, where are the middle ground people? Where are the half a? Well, I know you're probably thinking of some people right now, but let that get out of your mind. But where are those people? It's ridiculous. Right. And here's the other thing. If if we all evolved and we eventually came from other primates like monkeys, can I can I ask you something? Why are there still monkeys? Are they the slow group? (laughs) And if. If, if, if we are direct relatives of them, isn't keeping them in, in cages in the zoos some kind of human trafficking thing? You know, isn't that kind of imprisonment of some kind? Isn't it? It just doesn't make sense to me. Where is the person, listen, in the last 6,000 years, which is about how old the world is, where in 6,000 years nobody started, you know, mothers haven't started getting another hand, right? Dads haven't started getting their ears closed. <laughs> you know, those things haven't started happening. I just don't understand. Anyway, it's evolution is, is, is 2,000 years later, the same kind of cover-up, the same desperate attempt to cover up truth that happened back there at the resurrection. Right? It's just the same thing. All right, now, that rabbit's ran. We got it caught in the fridge. Here we go. Let's move on. Matthew 28, 16, and 17. Now, while they're coming up with this theory that nobody probably believed except people who had their mind made up ahead of time, while they're moving on with that, it didn't hinder God's plan at all. 
Jesus kept moving on with what he was supposed to do after the resurrection. Matthew 28, 16 says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, uh, to the mountain which Jesus had, de- had designated. Uh, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Who would that be, you guys think? Who? Doubting who? Okay, I'm going to stick up for that man today. Hold on. Okay, so the angels and Jesus told these women to go report what happened and say, we'll meet you in Galilee. So they did just that, and all of a sudden, everybody's heading to Galilee to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, right, he appears, we'll read that here in a minute, they all are rejoicing when they see him, and they're worshiping him. And there were some that had doubts. And we're going to talk about the one that had doubts. It was at least one struggling, and that one struggling was Thomas. Okay, now John gives us a little more information about the appearing of Jesus to them in Galilee and about Thomas. Okay, so let's take a look at a couple sections of Scripture. John twenty nineteen, He says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, which is Sunday, and when the doors were shut and the disciples were uh, on that day, I'm sorry, where was that here? I lost my place. And the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So the doors shut. Okay, and they're in there, just the disciples. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. That is exactly what it sounds like. It was just them. The door was shut. They're hiding from the Jews. And poof, there's Jesus in the middle of them. Okay, and he says, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Okay, Thomas wasn't there. Look, we'll move down to verse 24. But Thomas... One of the twelve, called Didymus, was not what? Well, he was not with them when Jesus came. All right, listen to this. Verse 25, So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Okay? So there's some important things John tells us here that Matthew didn't record. And the first one was Thomas wasn't there. Okay, they all got to see Jesus, poof, appear in the middle of the room. That's a big one right there. I mean, you're all sitting in the middle of the room and someone appears. I think that's going to make you think, right? Not only does he appear, he says, look at my scars for my crucifixion. They got to feel, you know that feeling you get when, when, when the presence of God is moving through? You know what I mean when you can just feel him? They got to feel that. They got to see his wounds, and people always say, oh, poor old dumb doubting Thomas. Listen, it's not like they were great martyrs of, you know, of, you know, of faith because they just dreamed up that Jesus had rose from the dead. They got to see it. They got to see the holes. They got to see the scars. They didn't muster up that faith on their own. They were hiding. Remember that. They were hiding from the Jews when this happened. So they all got to see all the information, and they run to Thomas and say, guess what? We just saw the Lord. And he's like, mm-hmm. Let me get this straight. The second I'm gone, all you guys see Jesus. And he just appears and shows you the scars in his hands and the scars in his side. Yeah, and he's like, I think you're punking me. What would you think? What would you think if someone came to you and told you that story? That would be pretty outrageous. And you're thinking, how convenient that I wasn't there when that happened. And so Thomas says, I tell you what, since he showed you all that, I won't believe until he shows me that. I won't believe until I can put my hands into his wounds. Then I'll believe. Right? So before we start saying how bad Thomas was, he wasn't there. 
It's not like he saw him and said, I don't believe. He wasn't there. Isn't that kind of unfair, the reputation he's got? You guys don't seem as sympathetic as I am. (laughs) Thomas was innocent. Anyway, so let's move on. Let's look at the second time he appears. John 20, starting in verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with him. Jesus, listen, and Thomas what? Now, Thomas is there this time. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it's just like, uh, it's like hitting rewind and play. He did the exact same thing he did before. He just appeared in the room and said, Peace be with you, except this time Thomas is there. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now imagine for a second the emotions that were going through Thomas at this moment. Jesus appears out of nowhere, just like they said, and he knows everything Thomas said about him. He looks right, he didn't say, hey guys, put your hands in. He looks at Thomas and he goes, and Thomas, you still want to stick your hands in my side? Here, you want to, you want to, that's what you wanted, wasn't it? Can you imagine how Thomas says, my Lord and my God. So in all fairness, when he got the same criteria the other ones did, he believed. You see what I mean? But it's interesting how Jesus, what Jesus says next, look at this. John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Now, what he's basically saying is, I don't mind proving who I am. I think I've done that. I don't don't mind removing your doubts. But you know, blessed are those who believed it because I said it before I was ever arrested that I would be resurrected and I would come to you. Blessed are the people who believed it because I already proved myself. Maybe when I rose Lazarus from the dead or when I fed thousands with the very few resources or maybe when I walked on water or maybe when I calmed a storm with a voice, right? Maybe, just maybe when I was being baptized and and, and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and the voice of God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I just kind of hope that maybe someone who witnessed all that would believe that coming back from the dead wasn't that big of a deal. That's what he was saying. So he's saying, and you know, who are the people who have to believe without seeing that? That's us. Blessed are those who don't see these things and yet believe. That's us. And, you know, we have written testimony of all the things that have happened, and history backs it up. You know, I mean, everything, there are archaeologists that have found stuff to back it up. It's all backed up. I mean, we can look back on that. But, you know, if we didn't have any of that, all the things that God has done for you now, you should believe anything he said. Am I right? How many times has God moved in your life and done things, and we forget all about it, and we throw up, you know, kind of, to be honest with you, we challenge him when we pray. It kind of bothers me. Well, God, if you don't want me to buy this house, don't let the loan go through. And God's like, you have 780 credit. It's going through, dude. Come on, seriously. You want the house. Don't throw that lame prayer at me. How about you pray that before you go fill out the application? You know what I mean? Honestly, we say, well, I I prayed if God didn't want me to go out, make her ugly. (laughs) Some of y'all, he answered that. But... No, I'm just saying, I mean, you know, we, don't, we order God around when we pray. That's ridiculous. How about you say, Lord, you have never failed me. 
It, there were times when I didn't know how you were going to do it, but you came through always. You delivered me. You've given me eternal life. I have healthy children. I have a good home. You've been so good to me that you know what? You don't have to show me anything. You said it's going to happen. I believe that. I'm just going to trust it to you. That's what he's talking about. That is what he's talking about here. He's saying, blessed are those who aren't going to see all those things and will just believe because of everything they've already seen. They'll believe, right? Listen, faith that requires proof isn't faith at all. It's just not faith. God will prove himself in his time. You know, so listen, if there's one thing I want you to take away from this, there's one thing is that the resurrection was an amazing, amazing event in Christian history, right? But it was a battle that had to be won that Jesus won. That's what it was. It was a battle, and probably one of the most bloody battles spiritually ever fought between the forces of good and evil. That had to happen, right? That had to happen, and it happened. Listen, there's battles going on every day, and I really, really wish believers, listen, I just wish that we understood how important it is that we put that full armor on and we win our portion of the battles instead of sitting on the couch and letting bullets whiz by our head while we're watching Survivor, you know? I really wish, I really wish we understood the battle because if we understood what's at stake, we'd be a little more serious about our faith. Because you know what? If Jesus were to come back tomorrow, I bet everyone in here would realize how serious the battle was and wish they had more time to fight that battle, don't you think? That's what I hope we take away from this. I'm going to stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you, Wood, to please bow your head. If this is your first time here, we always like to give an invitation, and it's not so we can trick people into coming down front. We don't do that. I just believe that the Word of God knows how and where to touch you. And there are times when you hear the Word of God spoken that you, f- you just swear that it was, that message was designed for you. And if God is speaking to you in that way, I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to come out and chase you down or email you. I just want to pray for you. If you're not sure where you stand, just make eye contact and put your head right back down, and I'll pray for you. Bless those people. Bless those people. I'm not going to call you out. Bless those people because, listen, it's that first step of saying, I know I need you. Bless those people. Listen, believers, I always pray for us also because, listen, we have... We have such an important job that isn't getting done. You know, and, and it needs to take priority in our life. All the things we're worried about won't be worth anything a thousand years from now, but your, your soul will. And every soul that you've helped God reach will mean something. So I'm going to pray for us that we would get serious. Let's, let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you do. Every week I say this, Lord, because every week it's true. I just can't believe you love someone like us. We're never going to be perfect. We're never going to get it right. We're always going to make mistakes. But with you using us, we can still do great things through your grace. By us believing in what your son has done, his death, burial, and resurrection, we can have eternal life and also have a great ministry where you work through us just because of your power and your majesty. We just thank you so much for that. And if there's someone here who doesn't know you, whatever is holding them back, I just pray that you would remove that from their mind and let them trust that Jesus is who he said he is and will do what he said he'll do. And on the authority of your word, we know that they'll be a child of God. I just pray that they reach out if that, they make that decision today. 
You know the hearts of those who are watching and listening, Lord. But God, for those of us who are believers, let us get busy. We've been lazy and complacent, and the world is turning into a much worse place because of it. Give us the passion and desire to be the soldiers we should be because the battle rages on. We just ask that you would go with us as we leave here. Keep us safe, and if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.